Esther chapter 6 as we continue our sermon series entitled God's Sovereignty in Silence and Suffering. This morning my title is The God of Reversals. I want to begin with a story. There's a single moment in Abraham Lincoln's life that changed the entire trajectory of his future. This story of greatness involved an old man, a barrel, and a kindness. Now, Abraham Lincoln, as only he can tell it, he tells the story like this. So these are his own words. He says, one day a man who was migrating to the west drove up in front of my store with a wagon which contained his family and household plunder. He asked me if I would buy an old barrel for which he had no room in his wagon and which he, which he said contained nothing of special value. I did not want it. But to oblige him, I bought it and paid him, I think, half a dollar for it. Without further examination, I put it away in the store and forgot about it. Sometime after, in overhauling things, I came upon the barrel and emptying it upon the floor to see what it contained, I found at the bottom of the rubbish a complete edition of Blackstone's commentaries on the law. I began to read and had plenty of time for during the long summer days when the farmers were busy with their crops, my customers were few and far between. The more I read, the more intensely interested I became. Never in my whole life was my mind so thoroughly absorbed. I read until I devoured them. That's from Ketchum's book, written in 1901. Lincoln later remarked that this was the best stroke of business I ever did in the grocery line. And one historian says this about this incident, quote, if that book is not in that barrel, then the 23-year-old Lincoln probably never teaches himself the law. If he never teaches himself the law, he never becomes one of the best trial lawyers in Illinois. If he doesn't become a famed lawyer, he doesn't represent the railroad and receive a then princely fee of $5,000. If he doesn't receive that fee, he cannot take time off to debate a man named Stephen Douglas seven different times on the issue of slavery. Douglas won the U.S. Senate election after the debates, but those who hated slavery came to know and love the one-time debt-ridden debt store owner. If he doesn't receive that fee, he cannot loan a man named Nash money. That Nash was the chairman of the state Republican Party, and he, does, he would not then in turn push for the all-important Republican convention to be held in Chicago instead of New York or St. Louis. And if the Republican convention is not held in Chicago, then Abraham Lincoln is not picked as the Republican nominee, and he is never elected president of the United States. If that particular book, here's what he says, if that particular book is not in that particular barrel, then Abraham Lincoln is not the man who won the Civil War and freed the slaves. Instead, maybe he remains a gaunt, debt-ridden, dry-goods store owner with no education and no hope. Well, so maybe that book was just a coincidence in that barrel. Or maybe it was God's divine providence. This morning, as we look at Esther chapter 6, many people will see a lot of fortunate coincidences, but I'm going to argue that what you should see is God's silent sovereignty working in the background according to his good purposes. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Esther chapter 6, 
as we look at verses 1 through 14, the God of reversals. I want to pray, and then we'll read it section by section, okay? Father, we are grateful this morning for your word. We pray that you would speak to us, turn our hearts towards Jesus, and Lord, may we see that you are the God who works everything out, no matter what it is, for your glory and our good. And Father, we ask now that you would meet with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 as we go through the sermon outline to save time. So the first thing we're going to see in verses 1 through 5 is evidences of God's silent providence. That's the first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 5, evidences of God's silent providence. Let me read verses 1 through 5. It says, On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him just that night. Um, And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Oh, i got to stop right there. We're only looking at verse 1 through 5. Pardon me. I was getting caught up in the story. So, evidences of God's providence. I want to show you at least three to four of these. I want you to see it first in the king's sleeplessness. I want you to see God's providence in the king's sleeplessness. If you notice there in verse 1, it says that the king could not sleep. The, the, that literally translated, says in the Hebrew, the sleep of the king fled away. So, the king, uh, kings are probably familiar with sleepless nights. Here, King Ahasuerus could be wondering about Queen Esther's banquet and her request, or about another thousand matters of the empire. Shakespeare even wrote in his uh, famous uh, history of Henry IV about how Henry IV complains about sleep when everyone else seems to be able to sleep in his kingdom. This is what Shakespeare says. He's, uh, King, King Henry says in Shakespeare's writings, he says, How many thousands of my poorest subjects are at this hour asleep. O sleep, O gentle sleep, nature's soft nurse, how have I frightened thee that thou no more will weigh my eyelids down. And then you have this famous line, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. Now Solomon agreed with this sentiment. He says in Ecclesiastes, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Now historically, the Jews have seen this verse indicating, um, indicating that the Lord was behind this one particular sleepless night. The Greek translation of the Septuagint in Esther adds this line that the Lord kept King Ahasuerus from sleeping, even though that phrase is absent in the Hebrew. But here's what I want you to see. All throughout the Old Testament, the Lord filled the sleep of kings like uh, Pharaoh and, Neb- and Neb- Nebuchadnezzar with dreams about God's coming providence and his coming purposes. But here, God withholds sleep from King Ahasuerus. God is silently at work 
while the rest of the world sleeps. Now, God makes this point himself in Psalm 121. He reminds us of this truth. David writes there, David says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you, listen, will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. See God's silent providence in this one sleepless night of King Ahasuerus. But secondly, see it in the king's choice of entertainment. So as the king can't sleep, what does he do? He, he decides that he needs to be read to. And so he, there's nothing better to read than the chronicles of his kingdom and of all of his mighty deeds as king. At least he can go to bed happy about his own press. But in God's providence, in God's providence, his attendants read to him one particular section out of one particular book, and it has to do with Mordecai. Out of all of the king's chronicles, out of all the king's books, out of all the king's deeds, this one particular night, what does King Ahasuerus get read to him? The story of Mordecai. And this catches the king's immediate attention. Why? Because the king is reminded that Mordecai saved his life from his own eunuchs who were guarding his bedroom. Now we're told by the author of, of Esther back in chapter 2 verse 23 that when Mordecai saved the king, those deeds were written in this book. This particular book that King Ahasuerus is having read to him in the middle of the night. Now some may argue that this is just a fortunate coincidence. And I would say to that, sure. You go ahead and believe that. Just like you go ahead and believe that it was an accident that there was a copy of Blackstone's commentaries in the bottom of a barrel that was in the back of a guy's cart who just happened to be throwing out the trash and he got rid of it all for 50 cents over 100 and something years ago. So notice the king's choice of entertainment. But thirdly, notice that there's another evidence of God's silent providence here and it is, it's in the fact that, they over, that the king had overlooked rewarding Mordecai. Now, in verse 3, he, the king asked, what has been done for Mordecai since he saved my life? What distinction or honor has been given to him? And the attendant says, none. He's never been honored for his loyalty. Now, Persian kings, as well as the kings of other nations, they all had policies to reward faithful subjects and to reward others for their loyalty as, as, a, as, a, as a means of building more loyalty and demonstrating their generosity and hospitality towards the faithful. And the king takes note that none of this had been done for Mordecai. Now the king immediately says, this situation has to be remedied. This situation has to be taken care of. After all, this wasn't some random act of kindness that Mordecai had done, you know. It's not like he overlooked Mordecai volunteering at the local preschool crosswalk, you know. Those are important volunteers, too, that are sometimes overlooked. But this isn't what Mordecai had done. No, if Mordecai had not acted in history, acted at this time to save King Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus would be asleep on this night. Like the permanent kind. Like the kind you never get up from. He would be dead. So, the, so Mordecai literally saved his life. Now, here's the point. Um, had Mordecai been honored then the king would have no reason on this night to think he should be honored. 
You might think of that as he was just overlooked. Or maybe God's purposes were to bring him to this very moment at this very time. Now I want to say that this also says something about Mordecai, doesn't it? All throughout the story of Esther, has Mordecai complained that he's not been honored? Has Mordecai sought to be lifted up? Has Mordecai sought position or sought accolades or sought to be recognized in front of all people? No, Mordecai isn't seeking those things. Mordecai says, I'm just doing my job. It's my job to protect the king and and seek the good of the city to which I've been sent. And I want to say here, that shows a huge contrast between Haman and Mordecai. He is everything that Haman isn't at this point in the story. But I want you to notice there's a fourth and final picture of God's silent sovereignty. And that's that's found in the arrival of Haman at just the right moment. Apparently the king has been up all night and everything's been read to him all night. And at this point in the story... It says, the king, is, the king says, we have to do something for Mordecai. Who's in the court? And we see God's providence in the fact that Haman is in this court at just the right time. The king wants to remedy the situation that's fresh on his mind, and Haman is here. But the reader knows something that the king doesn't. The reader knows why Haman is here, right? The king knows that Haman has his own plan. Haman's been up all night building gallows 75 feet tall with the purpose of putting Mordecai on those gallows and then going to a feast with Queen Esther. Now now the king's intentions and and Haman's intentions are absolutely opposite. What does the king want to do? Honor Mordecai. What does Haman want to do? Destroy Mordecai. They have two very different intentions And I want to say that this shows us a truth about God's providence. Hear me, this is the truth that's written all over the Bible. God's intentions are not always man's intentions. Can I get an amen? There are so many things that man intends for evil and man intends for harm that God's intentions, even in the midst of them, are to turn them for good, for the saving of lives. Think of Joseph's brothers in Egypt. They meant to to sell him for evil, but God meant it for good. After all, God used Joseph to save God's people from famine in Israel. But most of all, think of Jesus. The religious leaders meant evil. They meant murder. They meant to kill the spotless, sinless Son of God. But what did God intend? God intended that through the cruel cross that salvation would be offered for all people everywhere. What man intends and what God intends are usually asymmetrical. So see evidences of God's silent sovereignty. But the second thing in our text, I want you to see that the humble are exalted and the prideful are brought low. Look there, and I want to I read, uh, I'm gonna re- we're going to look at verses 6 through 12 in two sections here. The first, um, I want to say that throughout this whole story, just write Proverbs 16, 18 over this whole section. Proverbs 16, 18, which says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So I want to say, I want to break this into two quick sections. First, I want to say it this way. Be careful of the prideful assumptions that you make. Be careful. This is the warning about why the, the, pride are brought, the prideful are brought low and the humble are exalted. So we have to be careful of the prideful assumptions that you make. Look at verses 6 through 8 and I'll demonstrate it. He says, so Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? 
And Haman said to himself, that's who the prideful always talk to, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown is set. And he says, and let the robes and the horse be handed over, and then let him dress him, and let him go and parade him around, and say throughout the city, thus shall it be done for whom the man, the, to the man to whom the king delights to honor. So let me show you three assumptions here that Haman makes. Prideful assumptions. Assumption one, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman is so filled with pride that he assumes that there is no one else in all the kingdom that the king would like to honor besides him. That is what pride will do. It will look at any situation in front of you and think, this is about me. Well, let me just go ahead and just say it as humbly as your pastor can say it. It's not about you. This whole universe is not about you. Your own life is not even about you. The, the world we live in is about Jesus. Everything is about Him and His glory and His preeminence for eternity. It's not about you. So don't make it about you, and I promise you'll have a lot less time. You'll have a lot less reason to apologize. Take note, Jacob. I was apologizing this morning. Take note. Um, that's assumption number one. Assumption number two. Now, assumption number two is this. This day can't get any better. Haman is saying, this day can't get any better. The king will honor me today, and then Mordecai will see it. Then I'll hang Mordecai. Then I'll go merrily to the feast. I only came here today for two things. Let's hang Mordecai and then go to the feast. But now the king's going to honor me in front of Mordecai. Then I'll kill him. Then we'll go have a party. This day can't get any better. Don't make that assumption. You never know what any day will bring. You never know what any day will bring. Had Haman knew how this day would end, I promise you he would have a different attitude at this moment in his life. That's the th second assumption. And the third assumption, which is an even bigger assumption, the third assumption is to let the empire see me as the next king. You see, behind all of this, there's all this royal language here from, from Haman. Haman doesn't seem to just want to be honored. Here he assumes that if the king were to die, to die tragically, everyone would see him as the next king, right? He's wearing the king's royal robes. He's riding the king's royal horse that's wearing the king's royal crown. And he's riding around just like Joseph was paraded around Pharaoh, around Egypt as the number two in charge of all of Egypt. Here, Haman sings... I wouldn't want to press this out too far, but it seems as though the crown is on his mind that if the king were to die tragically, then everyone would know I was the guy that was second in charge and was probably the successor to the crown. So, be careful of the prideful assumptions you make. And then secondly, be careful of the prideful requests you make. Be careful of the prideful requests you make. Now look at verse 9, how Haman, unbeknownst to him, He's given just enough rope to hang himself with his own request. Look at verse 9. It says, and let, royal, and let the robes and the horse be handed to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. 
Haman says, get your best official and let them do all this work. Let them see that this is the man that has been given above all other men that should be, that should be the one that is done. So here the king wants to honor a man who deserves to be honored. Haman is simply a man who desires to be honored. But oh, how Haman must have heard the next words from the king. Look at what it says. Hurry and do all that you have said to Mordecai the Jew. Go honor him. How must those words have fallen on Haman's ears after all of those prideful assumptions and after that very prideful request? Now, here is the application I want to say. Um, I want to say first two things. The king here didn't give any indication, right, that he knew of the animosity between Haman and Mordecai. The king doesn't give as though he knew that. But every person sitting at the gate would absolutely know what was happening as Haman came holding the horse and Mordecai sitting on it, wearing the royal robes and the crown sitting on the horse's head. Everyone would have known what was happening. It would have been an incredible reversal and spectacle and an incredible unexpected turn of events. So as I apply this, I want to remind you, and that's my title this morning, that God is a God of incredible reversals. God can turn anything around for good. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The only assumptions that we need to make as Christians are gospel assumptions. We should assume that our flesh, left unchecked, will always seek to please itself and puff itself, up, puff itself up over against others. That's a gospel assumption. Left to ourselves, we don't choose love. We don't choose to love humility. Left to ourselves, we don't choose to pursue holiness. But what Jesus, but what Jesus demonstrated in his life and what he calls us to as his children, is, but that is exactly what Jesus demonstrated in his life, sorry, and what he calls us to as his children. Hear me. The gospel reminds us that we are sinful and flawed. More so than we could ever imagine. That's who we are at our, at our core. We are sinful and flawed. Even more so than we could ever imagine. And the gospel reminds us that at the very same time we are loved, accepted, and forgiven in Christ. So what the gospel does and what the gospel should do in our lives is it should kill the root of pride and selfishness. And at the same time, the gospel should produce in us the fruit of gratitude and humility. In God's kingdom, the gospel reverses everything. Because of the gospel, the last are first and the first are last. The way to be the greatest is the way to become the lowest and the servant of all. The way to be blessed is not to hoard things or seek blessing for yourself. No, it is to be generous and to seek the good and blessing of others. It is a reversal. The gospel turns the world not upside down, but right side up. Now in conclusion, I want you to look at verse 13, at this incredible turn of events. I want you to look at what happens. I'm going to just begin... Um, reading in verse 10 through the end, it says, Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned, 
So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man uh, whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. All of this parade didn't change Mordecai at all. He just goes back to work. That's it. He's honored, doesn't care, goes back to work. And it says, But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and his friends everything that had happened to him. Then 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 his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Look at verse 13, as I just read, at this incredible turn of events. All of a sudden, Haman's friends, who had instigated and stirred up this trouble just a few chapters earlier, all at once, these who've stirred up his pride and anger are now called wise. I think that's tongue-in-cheek. All of a sudden, they're called wise men. Now, I think the author calls them wise probably because of the conclusion that they've drawn. Notice that they say, you've begun to fall before Mordecai. You are being put low and Mordecai is being lifted up. He says it's begun to happen. But if he's Jewish, that's the issue. If Mordecai is Jewish, you will not overcome him. You will surely fall. Now, the reason is because this is an echo of God's promise to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12 and following, God made many promises to Abraham, but one of the very clear promises of the covenant, God promised Abraham that he would be his God and Abraham's descendants would be his people and that God would surely protect them and bless those that bless them and curse those that curse them. And that is exactly what we see happening here in Esther whether or not Haman or Ahasuerus or anyone else believed it or not. But that's not the end of God's covenant to Abraham. God also promised that through Abraham's seed, the entire world would be blessed. And that great blessing came thousands of years later through Christ, who is the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of Isaac, the descendant of Jacob, the descendant of Judah, and the descendant of David. That all those who would draw near to him would be welcomed into God's family, become a part of His people, would be adopted as sons and daughters, be heirs of the kingdom, be forgiven of their sins, and be given eternal life. That is the promise, the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. And right here in Esther, we see an echo of that with the issue between Haman and Mordecai. As Haman is brought low, the the prideful are humbled, and the humbled are exalted. The same is still true today. If you don't know Jesus, then you need to set down your pride. You need to humble yourself before him in repentance and faith and receive the blessing and the promise that was given to Abraham. If you don't know Jesus, then your pride will be your undoing. Don't pridefully assume that God will give you a pass. He will not. All of the world will be judged by the gospel according to Jesus. But if you're a believer, then you need to hear this as a promise, that every promise God has ever made is true. And every promise He has made to you will be brought to pass. And God can turn anything in your life for good. It might be painful, but the story written over our lives is someone else might have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of lives. 
And then finally, I want to say to you this morning, if you don't have a church home, we invite you to be a part of our church, not because we're perfect, because we're not, but we purpose to be a church where we're going to love Jesus, we're going to love people, and we're going to try to grow in Christ-likeness together. After the service is concluded, I invite you to come and speak to me about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would take this word and press it deep into our hearts. Father, help us to see your glory above all things. And Lord, as we go, Father, may we go walking in Christ in light of the gospel. May we put pride to death in us and walk in humility before us, in gratitude and in love with Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. May God bless you as you go.